coming up this evening on NTD Business. Two budget airlines planning to merge together in a multi-billion dollar deal. It'll make them the fifth largest airline in the United States, but how would it impact travelers? Streaming platform Spotify is saying it's not going to silence top podcaster Joe Rogan, even after controversies over some of his episodes, while another big platform makes a big offer to Rogan to move over. And sponsors of the Beijing Winter Games facing pushback from the countries over the country's human rights records. We take a look at the dilemma big companies face working in the Chinese market. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. Spotify says it has no plans to silence or remove a top-rated podcaster Joe Rogan from its platform. Even after a video compilation surfaced showing him saying the N-word several times. Rogan apologized for using the N-word, said he wouldn't do it again. In fact, he said he never meant it in a racist way and insisted he's not racist. Rogan also took down some potentially controversial past episodes from the Spotify platform. Spotify CEO called some of Rogan's comments, quote, incredibly hurtful, but he insisted that silencing Rogan is not the answer. Rogan has insisted he's not intentionally courting controversy with this content, only that he's trying to have conversations on his podcast with people who have differing opinions. Spotify signed a $100 million deal with Rogan in 2019, but today, Rumble, a YouTube alternative with 30 million users, offered Rogan $100 million to move to its platform exclusively. Rogan hasn't given any indication he wants to leave Spotify. And Google's parent company Alphabet is facing a lawsuit in Europe. It's being sued by price comparison firm PriceRunner for around $2.4 billion. It says Google manipulates search results to favor its own shopping service. PriceRunner wants compensation for profits it claims Google has cost it. Google spokesperson, though, said the company would fight the lawsuit in court. It claims changes it made to its shopping ads five years ago have worked successfully. It also said PriceRunner chose not to use shopping ads in Google, so it may not have seen the same success as others. PriceRunner, though, says it is prepared to fight for years with financing in place and additional plans in case it doesn't win. And Senator Ted Cruz is buying the crypto dip. A financial disclosure filing on Friday shows he's bought between $15,000 to $50,000 worth of Bitcoin. That happened on January 25th, back when Bitcoin was trading around $37,000, right after hitting its six-month low of $35,000. Cruz's state of Texas is starting to become a hot destination for crypto miners. Cruz himself has spoken about the crypto industry, how it could support the state's energy system. That's because crypto mining can be turned on or off easily. So during a power shortage, for example, Bitcoin miners could be turned off to divert the power to where it's most needed. Bitcoin's now trading at around $44,000. Nice premium for the senator. The Boston Fed and MIT have released a long-awaited tech research and open source code could be used as the groundwork for a potential central bank digital currency or central bank cryptocurrency. Anthony's Phil Zoe takes a look at the pros and the cons. 
the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and MIT have released an open-source code that could be used for a future central bank digital currency, or basically crypto made by the government. Going to digital currency or cryptocurrencies for the Fed makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of things going on in the world of crypto, and this is really not helping. Bob Bilbrock is leading his company Capture into the new phase of the internet with blockchain and crypto investments. We had the paper check system, and then they went to ACH, and I think Fed now is moving towards just a digital liability system, which will speed processes. He says it'll make things easier for both the government and citizens, especially when it comes to stimulus. Adding stimulus um, to the economy quicker, instead of having to mail checks out to people when we do stimulus, <laughs> they can actually, um, through the Treasury, they can actually literally do that digitally now, which would be a much more efficient system. But world economist and finance professor John Edmonds of Babson College disagrees. An increase in the amount of purchasing power circulating in the economy, which is difficult to measure and difficult to control, and if you're uh, if you're running U.S. economic policy, you really don't want that right now. In one word, inflation, that could be a problem. You really want to be able to control the means of payment and make sure that there's not too much of it floating around. Um, that's hard enough to do already because they have to worry about the velocity of circulation of the existing paper money. He says there could be trouble if the U.S. government adds another form of currency, such as digital currency. But he adds the U.S. is in a tough spot because countries like China and El Salvador are already testing out this currency. And the U.S. wants a piece of the action in case this technology does take off. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. Wall Street ended lower today. The Dow was a little unchanged. S&P 500 lost 17 points, about four-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq today dropped 82 points, almost about six-tenths of a percent today. Two low-fare airlines are planning to become one. Spirit and Frontier Airlines announcing a merger Monday worth $6.6 billion. The new airline would leapfrog JetBlue and Alaska Air to become the fifth-largest domestic airline. It's not yet known which name the new airline will take or if it'll fly under a new one. Spirit Airlines CEO Ted Christie says customers can expect the low fares to continue. He'd be glad to hear. One industry expert says consumers will be the winner here. Well, I think the winner will be travelers because we, do ha we will have a larger, stronger, uh, deep discount airline that will be better able to compete against the larger carriers. Uh, uh, and this is an airline that has also shown it's willing to serve smaller cities, not just medium and large sized cities. Both Spirit and Frontier suffered losses in 2020 and 2021, think lockdowns. But they also showed revenue in the last quarter that was just 2% off from pre-pandemic levels. They're recovering much faster than legacy airlines because low-cost carriers rely less on business travelers. Ford is suspending or slowing production at several North American factories today. It told us the global semiconductor shortage continues to affect its North American plants. And they're not alone. Other car makers and industries are still feeling the pain too. Ford says it's working on ways to maximize production, warning the chip shortage would mean fewer vehicles completed in the first quarter. It also expects things to get better in the second half of the year. Could this be another diesel gate? 
South Korea has fined Mercedes-Benz over false advertising, saying the car maker tampered with pollution mitigation devices in the vehicles by installing illegal software. That made the vehicles perform differently during normal driving and official emissions testing. Just a total of 15 models had such software involved. Now the government regulator is fining Mercedes $17 million over the incident. There were no immediate comment from the car maker. Last year, South Korea, though, also fined or ordered corrective actions from Nissan, Porsche, Stellantis and Volkswagen. The Beijing Winter Olympics have started, even if the country's human rights abuses haven't ended. Twice as many Americans approve of the U.S. diplomatic boycott than disapprove of it. Now some big companies are facing the moral dilemma of sponsoring the games in a country where the regime is accused of genocide. Anthony's Colin Fredrickson has the details. Nearly half of Americans approve of President Biden's diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. That's according to a recent Pew study. The boycott aims to highlight the Chinese regime's human rights violations in Xinjiang. Now Olympic sponsors are facing some pushback. Five of the top sponsors are American-owned, including Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Intel, Procter & Gamble, and Visa. Several of them say they support diversity and inclusivity. At the Coca-Cola Company, diversity, equity, and inclusion is in our DNA. It is at the heart of our values and the bedrock of our company's culture. But now some question whether the companies are serious about their social responsibility. How can you have corporate responsibility and diversity and you know, equal rights, but then you're going to support a genocide? That makes no sense to me. Assistant Professor of Business Law Nicholas Creel says last April, Coca-Cola issued a statement against some voting legislation in the United States. Now we go and see that they're very happily advertising the, uh, the Olympics here in communist China. And uh, it shows pretty clearly that if they're willing to do that, all for the idea of making more money, because it's going to be quite a lucrative advertising opportunity. So why would companies risk losing their reputation and hurting their brand image? They are really all that worried about ethics, and they're more just worried about profit when it comes down to it. But sponsors are facing some real problems. Sponsorships are locked in for many years, and sponsors can't choose which games they're going to join. Professor of Sport Management Rick Burton says it's always difficult for Olympic sponsors because they know there are going to be people protesting something in each host country. If Coca-Cola came out in the United States and said that they were against gun violence, um, there would be a lot of people who buy guns and, and believe in the right to carry guns who might believe that Coca-Cola was attacking them and suddenly would not buy Coca-Cola. Creel says with corporate social responsibility, Human rights abuses can't be ignored. And if that's something that we can ignore, then it looks like we could ignore literally anything else. China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo says he hopes the public will vote with their dollars. You all just agree not to shop at the companies that are, uh, you know, supporting genocide or supporting forced labor, or we could, you know, have letter writing campaigns and things, but I really wish the public would take a stance on this. According to the International Olympic Committee's charter, the Olympics promote a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. One thing to watch out for future games is whether the IOC changes how it chooses host countries. Beijing. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. The U.S. government has charged a Chinese company for stealing American technologies.
The Chinese company is called Hytera. The Justice Department says it stole technology about walkie-talkies from Motorola. The indictment says Hytera paid workers more than what they could receive at Motorola in exchange for stealing the trade secrets. Former Motorola employees all signed confidentiality agreements at the time they were hired. The company says the charges show the deliberate character of the Chinese company's conduct, says it'll seek to collect hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. With that, we'll take a quick break, but still to come this evening. Researchers announcing a new material that's as strong as steel, but as light as plastic. What could it be used for? And the United States taking steps to clean up junk in space. Why is it a problem, and what is the U.S. going to do about it? That and more coming up on NTD Business. back. Scientists have created a new material that combines the strength of steel with the lightness of plastic. Researchers at MIT revealed the creation in a study published in Nature last week. They say it's made from the same substance that makes plastic, is as light as plastic, but is stronger than steel. In fact, the new material is even harder to break than bulletproof glass. Scientists believe the material could be easily manufactured in large quantities, saying it could be used to make everything from lightweight coatings for cars and phones to important infrastructure like bridges. Outer space is apparently turning into a junkyard. Earth's orbit is now littered with debris after years of exploration. U.S. has been slow to clean up after itself apparently, but now the Biden administration taking steps to address the trash in space. In space, what goes up does not always come down. After decades of launches since the dawn of the space age, Earth's orbit has become a junkyard of dead satellites and abandoned rocket bodies. And anytime two objects traveling at about five miles a second collide, the impact could look like a scene straight out of the movie Gravity. In real life, no people in space have ever been hit, but the International Space Station has. In 2016, a small piece of debris cracked a window on the orbiting outpost, and in December, its crew prepared for an emergency evacuation after a Russian anti-satellite missile test created a massive debris cloud. We will need to activate Dragon Safe Haven. Today, U.S. Space Command is tracking more than 40,000 objects in space, and only about 5,000 of them are active satellites. The vast majority of space junk still in orbit is from the two major players in the first space race, Russia and the United States. If these spacecraft were left there by the U.S. government, and in general they were, um, then that becomes their responsibility to clean it up. And in the same way that the military would not leave a broken down tank on the battlefield, uh, nor would it go ahead and, uh, and leave a ship, um, a derelict ship at sea. 
But so far, the effort to clean up space has been led by Japan and the European Space Agency and private companies. Some companies like ClearSpace are trying to grab debris with robotic tentacles. Others are trying to catch it with a massive fishing net. And in August, a company called Astroscale successfully tested capturing a small satellite with a magnetic arm. We use a robotic arm that extends and attaches to that metallic plate. That allows us then to uh, basically perform a tow truck or a tug service, bringing that satellite down to a safe distance, and then we can release it to naturally and safely burn up in, in the atmosphere. Astroscale caught the attention of the Prince of Wales, who visited its UK-based mission control this week. The company now has debris removal contracts with the UK, the European Union, and Japan. In the US, unfortunately, we haven't seen and we haven't gotten as much traction from the US government. But the Biden administration is starting to change that. In January, the White House held meetings with experts about how to clean up space. And the Space Force is launching a program called Orbital Prime that will give companies the seed funding to do it. Our vision in this partnership is to aggressively explore those capabilities with you today in the hope that we and others can purchase them as a service in the future. So we're delighted to be joined by Professor Larry Kotlikoff, Harvard-trained economist, also the author of Money Magic, An Economist's Secrets to More Money, Less Risk, and a Better Life. Larry, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Great to be with you, Paul. Professor, we're going to have a little bit of a, maybe an awkward conversation for any of our listeners here. It was a little bit awkward for me as I read your book and, and read your recent column on, on CNBC. We're so used to people t teaching us and advising us how to retire as early as possible. And maybe today we're going to talk about how we can plan to retire maybe a little bit later to, to play it safe. I think to begin with, maybe you can explain to us the difference between planning for how long you expect to live for versus planning for the maximum time you could live for? Yeah, so economics is very clear that we should look at the worst case scenario. Financially speaking, living to your maximum age of life is the worst case scenario. And we should do that in any risky environment uh, setting. So if we're thinking about our house uh, burning down, that's the worst case scenario, right? If we're thinking about totaling our car, worst case scenario, when it comes to health insurance, we're thinking about a really expensive operation. Always we're thinking about the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario for longevity risk is that you live to your maximum age of life. So economics says don't plan to live on, to, to die on time at your life expectancy. Plan to live at the most expensive, uh, you know, to die at your most expensive point after you paid for yourself right up through age 100. Do you feel that most Americans are planning to retire too early from your, your research? Uh, yeah, they are, and they're, uh, because we see uh, most Americans taking Social Security uh, as soon as they retire, and most uh, people are taking Social Security are taking it before 66 or 67. About 6% are waiting till 70 to take their retirement benefit probably 85% should be doing that. So even if you retire early, you should be very patient with respect to taking your Social Security retirement benefit. But yeah, the, the you know, the what's share- the advantage? What's the advantage to taking it later, Professor? Well, if you wait till 70, your benefit adjusted for inflation 
is 76% higher than it is at 62, if starting it at 62. So if I take it at 62 and I show up eight years later and I look at what I could have started receiving if I waited to just to go on and file uh, today, eight years later, the number would be 76% higher, no matter what the inflation had been in between. So can you, you know, think about living from 70 through 100 for 30 years, getting a 76% higher check month in and month out, uh, that's gonna make a huge difference. You've talked about recently uh, and in your book about ageism as well, the problems facing uh, older people with actually staying employed, staying in work as they get older. Are there certain changes that need to be made in, in people's lives? Do they need to upskill or, or how do people stay in work beyond you know, 60, 70 that, that you've seen? Well, you can certainly try and uh, set up your own, think about uh, setting up your own business. Um, uh, you could you know, do something like uh, buy some real estate and Airbnb it these days, maybe even Airbnb your own place for part of the year. I've seen people do that to make some money. And that obviously is work because you have to uh, maintain it and you know, oversee the entire uh, rental business. There's um, uh, lots of jobs open right now. Uh, many of them don't require standing on your feet all day so that you can um, uh, so that you can actually uh, you know physically handle it uh, I think it's really a, a, a seller's market in the job market right now so people should be pushing very hard to find a job that they can do for a long time and be, be very happy and satisfied with it I know the workforce would really appreciate them at the moment professor yeah. really appreciate it professor Lawrence Kotlikoff uh, really appreciate it thank you so much it's been a great pleasure the type of candy you get for your valentine might depend on what state you're in. CandyStore.com released a list of the top-selling Valentine's Day candies for each state. People in 12 states prefer candy hearts, including California, Florida, and Virginia. 16 states, including New York, Tennessee, and Colorado, favor heart-shaped boxes of chocolates. Lots of them here in New York City. Nine states preferred M&Ms, including Iowa, New Jersey, and Maryland. Valentine's Day candy sales dropped more than 20% last year during the pandemic. But this year, National Retail Federation expects near-record-breaking candy sales. If you want to see the most popular candy is in your state, head over to candystore.com. An Egyptian designer has combined fashion and technology to help tourists find the country's main attractions. The Decentral Thomas is more. Allah Ahmed Al Shastawi has created an innovative way for tourists to blend ancient Egyptian fashion with information technology. The designer made a dress embroidered with a QR code. Once scanned, it offers information on the country's top tourist attractions. This is the code I used in the design. I sewed it onto the sleeve so it doesn't take up too much of the dress and blends into the design. It has all the data that I uploaded onto the app, which you can find on the phone. It's available in three different languages. Wearers can use their mobile phones to scan the code, which takes them to an app with the names, addresses, operating times, and prices of Egypt's main sites. To design something that blends pharaonic culture with modern tastes that can be worn today was really difficult. 
Printing the QR code on the dress was also difficult because I did this during the pandemic and most places were closed at the time. Elsha Stawi originally created the dress for her university graduation project, and she's hoping for the funding that will allow her to bring her brand, Pharos, to life and create several other designs for dresses she has sketched out. My dream is that this idea will catch on and that I'll have the ability to design several dresses because I've done only one. I want to create all my designs and make others for men, women, and children and have a brand under my name that specializes in pharaonic culture, which will help Egypt. Elsha Sawi also plans on expanding her fashion line to include options for men and children. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. So there's business updates for today, but you can still catch NTD Evening News. That's with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. For NTD Business, it's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.